who we are at our core is going to get tested by what we do in life and who we associate with and what we allow ourselves. And so the book is actually an unfurling of a person's nature to understand her true essence and see sort of what is really important to her if nobody had told her how to think or feel. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Each week on The Convo Couch, I'll be chatting to a wide range of women writers, focusing on the heart, craft and business of writing, along with a new release feature author each month. You can listen to the episodes on any of the major podcasting platforms or directly from the Rights for Women website, where you'll also find the transcript of each chat and the extensive Rights for Women backlist. On a personal writing note, my current release is All We Dream. If you'd like to know more about it or any of my books, you can check out my website at pamelacook.com.au for more information. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo Couch and chat to this week's guest. My guest today on the Convo Couch for this month's Heart of Writing episode is Amal Awad. Amal is a journalist, author, screenwriter and performer. She has contributed to numerous journals and anthologies, appeared as a speaker or panellist at schools, universities and writers' festivals around Australia, and she also facilitates workshops covering topics such as diversity, multiculturalism, women's issues and pop culture. She is the author of five books, including two novels, Courting Samira and This Is How You Get Better, and the non-fiction books The Incidental Muslim, Beyond Veiled Clichés, The Real Lives of Arab Women, and Fridays with My Folks, Stories on Aging, Illness and Life. She has contributed to the anthologies Growing Up Muslim in Australia and Some Girls Do, My Life as a Teenager. Amal's new book, In My Past Life I Was Cleopatra, is a work of non-fiction that delves into the world of new age, self-help and spirituality. She is also writing her next novel, The Things We See in the Light, due for release this year, and she has produced a deck of cards, The Creative Compass, to inspire and motivate creatives. It's Amal's obvious passion for and dedication to her writing and life in general that prompted me to invite her to be a guest on this Heart of Writing episode. Okay, Amal, welcome to the Convo Couch at Writes for Women. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. So just to start with, Amal, just to give listeners an idea of where you've come from in terms of your own writing, you've got such a rich and varied body of work across journal articles, anthologies, fiction, nonfiction. Can you give us an idea of where you got started with your writing and, and how you ended up being really where you are today? Yeah, I actually started out writing Hecklers for Sydney Morning Herald. I don't know if you remember that column. I do. It was, <laughs> it, yeah. was, it, it was a satirical column and it wasn't paid, but they published it daily during the week. And I wrote a piece about being unemployable. Basically, I had a law degree and nobody was hiring me. 
So I wrote my own rejection letter and <laughs> I submitted this piece and they took it and it sort of was a spark ignited. It was, it was like a realization because I always felt like I had things to say, but I didn't have that sense of, well, I haven't been trained or can I do this or whatever. And, and that was just my first taste of realizing I have a sense of humor that can translate to the page a bit. And it was just very exciting. And so I think I wrote about five hecklers over the years and I took a very circuitous route to writing, but it was really my entrance was through journalism, from editing, from law. So I kind of took different steps to get there. And eventually I wrote my first fiction book and nonfiction was how I got published by a major publisher for the first time. And that was my journalism background coming into play. So it's, it's kind of a very big story, took sort of about a decade really, I think. And I talk a bit about it in my own, I, I have a, a little sort of passion project. It's a podcast, but it's just a passion project really. And I talk a lot about sort of the challenges of being a creative. And one of them is that climb. It's a very, very long, steep climb. So yeah, that's how I got started though. Yeah. So a long time ago, like maybe 15 years ago or something like that. Oh no, maybe more. I think it was 2001. What am I talking about? It was 20 years ago. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make too, that any sort of career in a creative field, writing, art, whatever, it is a long climb, isn't it? I come across students who are just writing their first book and desperate to be published, but they've only actually been writing for a really short amount of time. So yeah. you know, I'm always sort of saying, give it time. It's the long haul type thing. Especially when you start to progress in your career and you look back on your earlier work and you realise that you had a taste of what you could do, but you weren't there yet. And I don't know that I had that much to say yet when I was much younger yeah. and it was only through life experience. And this isn't at all to begrudge younger writers. There are amazing younger writers, but writing is not for me how you write. It's what you have to say. And I, I think that my best writing isn't about being lyrical or poetic. I mean, I hope I am sometimes, but one thing I always hear from people is, Amal, your books are so easy to read. And I think, wonderful, they were horrible to write. <laughs> they were not easy to write at all. If they come across as easy, that's great. I, I don't get offended by that because it means I've done my job. I've taken the complex and the complicated and made them simpler for you so that you can take away what you need from that, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. So I, I think we shouldn't discount that journey as being valuable because mm. it actually is not just about upskilling and getting better at your craft. It's also about getting better at life in a way and understanding the richness of life and why that's so important in your writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, because all writing is a story really at the end of the day. And they all use similar constructs and similar ideas. The way I write nonfiction, it is different to fiction, but not everything about it is that different. I still try to pay attention to similar structures and what am I really charting in this person's story, whether it's a real person or a, a fictional character. Yeah, so do you find that writing both fiction and nonfiction, do they play off each other type thing? Does, does one feed into the other and vice versa? I think that they do a bit. I think what's been amazing about writing nonfiction is it's shown me how much we really are drenched in stories in the real world. And I think that a lot of people will look at fiction stories and think, well, that would never happen. And yet I've heard crazier stuff in real life. Yeah. And I remember years ago reading an article by, I think it was the lady who wrote Eat Shoots and Leaves. I can't remember her name, Lynn something. She wrote a book of essays and she said that sometimes the most 
real stories that she'd ever documented people didn't believe and the fictional stories she could go as crazy as she wanted and people accepted them as true and I, I think there's something in that I think non-fiction has to be as intriguing as fiction it has to lift people out of the ordinary it has to take them out of what they're in and at the end of the day your job as the writer is to connect people to other stories in a universal way now it doesn't mean everyone has to relate to every story but they're not going to stay with the story if they feel no connection to it, if they don't feel that this has relevance for them in some way, mm. whether it's as a lesson, a cautionary tale or something that they've been through. That's what fiction and nonfiction does. It just, I think the, the main thing that separates them is the stakes. I think that nonfiction, because it is based in reality, can have higher stakes. If you're talking about crime or if you're talking about tragedy in nonfiction work, it requires a delicacy that fiction perhaps doesn't require in the same way. Everything requires sensitivity. You, you are documenting ideas and stories, but I think nonfiction, you can be held a bit more accountable in a way because you have to get it right. The other thing I would say is with nonfiction, you tend to be a bit more curated with how you write. And I think Elizabeth Gilbert's talked about this. She's more truthful in her fiction writing than she's in her nonfiction writing because she knows that nonfiction people are going to look at that and say, well, that's all true. And in fiction, and I've heard this for myself and I hear this for a lot of authors, people are always searching for clues of who you are in that story. And I actually can just like erase any sort of suspense there and just tell you that we're all in those stories of course we are like we couldn't write them if we weren't in there for sure in some way shape or form we are in there aren't we yeah yeah, yeah. so you obviously are someone who has a lot of ideas for different projects whether they be fiction or non-fiction do you sort of store those up and then work your way through them or do you work on the basis that, you know, this idea has come to me and I really want to grab it? Like Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that idea of ideas floating around and if you don't grab them, they go mm. and somebody else will write them, that type thing. How yeah. do you approach your ideas and your projects that you have to work on? I tend to pay attention if an idea comes and I might leap on it, but nobody else does. And so you have to understand that even though you might feel the urgency of an idea, it can still slip you by because circumstances don't support it. And I think that that's confusing for people. And I, I find it confusing too sometimes. I think it's important to be attentive and pay attention to those ideas and do your best to advance them if it, the time is right, but don't be afraid to put things away if they're not ready yet. So sometimes something comes to you as a hint or a signal that you are meant to pay attention over the long term. So, for example, my new novel, which comes out later this year, that was brewing for about eight years. It was never something that I, I, I didn't even know if I was going to write it, if I'm being honest. I really just played with it and put it away and then played with it. And, and so sometimes that's fear. Sometimes that's thinking nobody will be interested in what you have to say. So it's, it's a bit of both. I will always give an idea a go. And if I just feel like it's not getting that energy back of what I've put into it, I might store it away and then it comes up again, or it might just be forgotten. And there was something in it maybe for me to do, but it just wasn't meant to be. And I, I always find that a bit confusing because I, I always think, well, why did I feel so inspired? But sometimes it's just to get yeah. you excited. And I think creativity is gift to people is that it gets you thinking and out of your ordinary so that you can actually start to create. And, and maybe that idea is the thing that leads you to something else. So be open. Yeah, exactly. And Amal, do you have a fairly regulated writing regime or are you someone that sort of 
writes when the, the muse grabs you? What's your approach to that whole discipline of writing type thing? I, I do write well to deadlines because I'm a journalist by mm. background, but no, I don't. I, I wish I could tell you I do. I'm hopeless. I'm, I'm not a procrastinator. I've learned that procrastination is actually very healthy if you can use it the right way. So that's something maybe we could talk about later. But for yeah, me, definitely. one thing I would say about my writing style, this probably kicked in with Beyond Valid Clichés, which I wrote about five or six years ago, I think it was, and I was terrified going in because I'd done about 80 interviews and I just felt overwhelmed. I thought, I don't know how to write this. And I, I was sitting there and I was crying and yeah. my husband was like, just start transcribing one interview. And I did. And of course, many transcriptions later, I had a book and, and then you have a structural edit and all these things happen. But the thing I noticed was with that book, something strange happened. I started to mind map mentally for the first time ever. A lot of writers have techniques about how they write. So they use cards or they use whatever. I use Evernote a lot, but I would just see it in my mind's eye. That paragraph doesn't belong there. It goes there. And so that was one thing that helped my writing along. It was allowing things to brew a bit and mm. marinate. And then I'd go back in chop and change and all of that. But the other thing that I've noticed since writing more books since then is that you can actually waste a lot of time and do a lot of damage forcing yourself, but you can't overindulge that either. You have to find this healthy balance between mm -hmm. the muse needs to strike, I need to be in the mood, I need to honour my cycles and the way I work. I'm not a morning person, for example. Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not, but really I'm a night owl. Let's just say that's who you are. So you need to honour that, but you can't sit there and go, well, I just have to wait for the muse to come and then you have a deadline in a week. If you are someone who works better under pressure, then that's okay. But be really switched on and aware about the tightness of that deadline and what it means for you. One other thing I would say is if it's that hard to write something, if you're dreading it, if you can't sit down and do it, I would really question why you're writing it. This was a huge lesson for me. I, I realized that as much as I found nonfiction rewarding, and I'm very proud of the books that I've written, I think they're very relevant and useful and I, I think they're evergreen. I, I also think they were very, very difficult to write and I didn't enjoy it as much as fiction in terms of the actual creative process. It's not as creative. It's, it's a lot more fiddly. You're much more accountable. You've got to deal with accuracy and people's real life experiences and feelings. And that's a great thing, but it's a lot of pressure. So you really have to sort of sit there and go, as much as I am proud of the book that I produced, would I want to go through that again? Probably not. It's a hard process writing nonfiction. And it's a, a very, very saturated marketplace right now as well. So you got to really want it. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I would say it. Well, that's probably a good time to talk about your nonfiction. In my past life, I was Cleopatra. Yeah. And you have written quite a few books prior to this written in nonfiction as well as fiction. You describe it as a love letter to the world in which I was raised and the ever-expanding one I curate. So it is a book about the new age, self-help and spirituality. You're investigating a whole lot of things around that. But can you talk a little bit about that quote and what you mean by that and how this has sort of come, I guess, partly out of your own heritage as well? Sure, of course. The thing that I found really interesting about New Age books was that I couldn't find anything that really documented what the New Age was. So when I went in to write this book, I I had a sense, and this often happens, of what I was trying to capture, but I didn't have it quite nailed in my mind of what I was trying to do. One thing I knew I didn't want to do was mock the New Age. Mm. I feel like there's a lot of mockery around modern practice and spirituality. The reason why I said it's a love letter is because that's what it became as I wrote it. It was an understanding that even though I have not necessarily 
emerged into adulthood in the way I was raised, that I have evolved and changed in a lot of ways. I treasure the knowledge I've received over the years and the experiences I've had because it's opened my mind in a way and has allowed me to be very open-minded in general and expansive and understanding the purpose of belief in our lives and, and what it gives us and why we do what we do. So the book was really an exploration of that. And the reason why it was a love letter was because I was trying to honour the fact that most of the new age is based on existing traditions that mean a lot to people, including myself. There's a lot of mockery of the new age, which entails mockery of existing traditions. Mm-hmm. So someone like Marie Kondo's Shinto tradition is, is what she is doing with her life-changing magic of tidying up and the mockery she's endured or the things that people have just said without blinking shocks me because they're actually insulting people's cultural traditions that are very old and sometimes ancient. And I I really just wanted to claw back a bit of that and say, hey, wait a second, I I get that people are uncomfortable with belief and I get that people are uncomfortable with practice because like Orlando Bloom recently came out with his morning schedule and it was like brain oil and Buddhist practice and all this and people were just mocking him and I thought we're really Mm. really uncomfortable with admitting that we might benefit from things and one of the things I talk about in the book is the fact that even atheists talk about being meditators and I I just find Mm. it this really interesting thing that it's like either people don't want to admit that they're curious and I call it woo curious yeah I love that yeah (laughs) um, or they really just they're so antagonistic towards it. And, and the thing is, I actually understand neutrality. I don't understand antagonism. Well, I do. I, I get I t- Antagonism is a trigger. It means you're triggered by this. Like the atheist who is spending their entire life trying to disprove the existence of God to me is as wedded to belief as the person who believes. Whereas there are neutral people you'll meet who'll be like, well, I don't know, or I don't believe, but. And you kind of just say, well, they're people who they get it. It's not about them. It's something that exists and people tap into it or they don't. So that's what the book is. It was me taking my journalism skills, but also my life experiences and my curiosity and saying, what is there to all of this? And why do we spend all this money trying to heal when we never seem to get to the destination? And I I will get you to read the book to understand how I conclude that. (laughs) Because I, (laughs) I do think there are solutions. And I don't think it is spending all of your money on retreats that you're just constantly going to need them. If, if mm-hmm. something is requiring your constant diligence and attention, you're actually not changing. And really the book is about the internal world versus the external world and how they reflect each other and the part that spiritual practice, I suppose, plays in that. There's a lot of performative New Age and I think that's why it gets mocked. And that's because New Age has taken existing traditions and used them and chewed them up a bit. So it's a, it's a, it's a real shame actually that it's happened that way. Yeah, it's such an interesting concept. And you do cover quite a lot of different sort of practices in the book. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided what areas of the new age and self-help and all that you were going to research? And did you research a lot more than what ended up in the book, for instance? Yeah, and I realised very quickly there was just no way I could cover everything. Mm. One of the things that I thought was very important was for me to be vulnerable and honest about my own hang-ups, my own 
loves my own like sort of weaknesses when it comes to that. And one of the the chapters that I grappled with the most was the divination chapter because I, I love a good card reading. I mean, I love cards. I, I read tarot and I think it's an exceptional tool. It's very practical. It's actually you can use it completely in a non-mystical way. I think. And I think a lot of people do actually these days. So there was a bit of grappling with how much do I reveal because I am sort of established in more of a literary area with my previous nonfiction. Here I was writing about the woo and I know that people get mocked for the woo and I guess I I was like, it's not my job to normalise this, but at the same time, can I? Because Mm. I think most people I meet, they're curious. If you tell them you can read tarot, they're like, can you read my cards or whatever? I think that was sort of the thing that I I thought about was there's so much I could cover here, but if I was introducing someone to this world or trying to capture it in a nutshell, what would I cover? And that's what really helped me decide. And because there was always an emphasis from the start on my personal journey, I knew I had to link what I had tried, which was beginning with self-help coming from religion to more ritualistic or meditative practice and sort of still having that aura or that background of religion and that influence, but really just more a spiritual practice. And so that sort of helped guide it as well. Like I'm not going to just talk about everything that I believe or think or feel because I'm a very expansive thinker. I don't really lock myself in. And I I really felt like if this book has posterity, then I don't want to say something that in 10 years might be irrelevant because I was a different person 10 years ago. So it was this juggling act of Am I the narrator and how much am I uh, like a, also just someone who's actually passing on information and knowledge to people? So it was about pulling out the stuff that I thought was identifiable, relatable, but also digging a bit deeper to show you how far people can go with something that is to you maybe a surface level thing. Most people haven't heard of galactic activations, right? No, I, no, I hadn't. <laughs> so, right. So, But that's important to cover because that's Mm. what I was trying to say, that this is where the new age takes you, that there are entire groups of people. And this is not an insult. Like I said, I don't judge. I think that a lot of us feel alone in the world. A lot of us feel like we haven't found our our tribe or our group or our community. And to a lot of the new ages, that makes them a starseed, which means that they come from a galactic family. So (laughs) who am I to judge that? I mean, people believe things that to you seem crazy or odd or whatever, but for them, it, it gives them comfort to believe that that resonates. The main thing that I would say people can take away from what I'm writing here is that the world, whatever this is, this universe, it is constantly giving us breadcrumbs. It's constantly giving us clues about who we are. It's giving us confirmations. And so what, what we do is we interpret that through our understanding of life. So a coincidence to one person is a spiritual download. Mm. It's like an angel giving them a confirmation. Whereas to another person, it's like, hey, weird, I was just thinking about that. And then that happened. And then to another person, it was like, well, it was just a psychic moment. I knew that that was going to happen. And so my body was preparing for it. There are a hundred ways, a million ways you could interpret the same event. And I think that that's the thing people need to understand is that everything is a practice that a person has resonated with. They've chosen that way of seeing the world or they inherited that way of seeing the world. So when you are inheriting a religion, it's a cultural interpretation of God. And as we grow up, as we get older and start to think a bit more deeply for ourselves, we might adapt differently. We might make some tweaks. We might go deeper into that. But either way, it is it is a viewpoint. It's it's a lens through which you see the world and it influences how you behave. So much in there. 
<laughs> it's, <laughs> deep. it's deep. It's deep. Yeah, it is. It's, it is. It's fun. The book is fun, but it can be as deep as you want it to be, and that was intentional. Um, uh, you actually went to a lot of these the different places and experienced quite a few different forms of new age or psychic healing or whatever the thing was that you were looking at. Were there any experiences that sort of really unnerved you or were there any that surprised you? Were there any that were really memorable for you as you were doing that? So I had been doing stuff before, in fairness, so I'll be up front and say that it wasn't like I'd never done anything woo before. That was one of the things I had to be really honest about. I think it was the story I begin with when I went to the dragon meditation. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was this room full of women who were, were all adults and it just got very competitive at the end where everybody was trying to out-dragon each other with what they saw and what they experienced. And to me, I, I saw the value in the meditation, but I didn't take it literally. And it just right. felt to me that everyone else in the room was taking it literally. And that's okay. I, I don't, like I said, I don't see it as necessarily harmful because people can spend their whole lives believing things as being literal that aren't true and it doesn't hurt them. But that was when I started to go, <laughs> I've got to, figure out what this is to me like what mm. what am I because I actually had gone in because I was thinking of writing a book that involved dragons and so okay. I, that was my reasoning but at the same time I love a good meditation I love a good guided meditation and often the people running these things are amazing women they're mm. very compassionate they're very warm I mean one thing I'll say about that is in these spaces I I have encountered some very sort of pointy people who are very competitive and it's very performative, but there are amazing women in the space, especially, and men who are really there because there's something in their spirit that's drawn to this work and they want to help people and they feel that it's helped them. So I want to help others. But that meditation really made me think, is it healthy for adults to live in this fantasy world where they can blame the supernatural on their lives where they're very wedded to the idea that they made a contract before they came into this life that's deciding their fate in this life. I, I, I really just wanted to investigate it, and that's all I ever do. I don't judge it. I always say, hey, I've probably done this before too. I grew up with superstition, which I talk about in the book, mm. and it influenced me heavily for many years. It's only in recent years that I've really been able to go, I don't need that to have such a hold on me because it's not great. It's not a great thing to have superstitious thoughts all the time that somebody can evil eye you or whatever. It's a very cultural thing. And it, it just becomes a bit of a cop-out. It starts to be that, oh, well, I didn't, I'm not accountable for my day. Somebody evil eyed me. <laughs> you know, it's this thing. So that was that. It's just this idea of like understanding that the fantasy of something is designed to be a metaphor. It's there to help you in the real world. But the danger lies when you start to live in this unseen world too much. And you'll hear it. There's a lot of people in New Age, they call it 5D. So there are all these different dimensions. Oh, yeah. And so like things are happening in the 5D or the 7D. And, and look, once again, no judgment because I think you have very fully functioning adults who believe this stuff and it's all fine. It's not for me to judge the belief. It was more what does it give us and why and does it do harm sometimes if it means people are not really getting the help they need. And that was very important when I was writing like divination, for example. One of the things I said to my editor was I think I need to, to mention to people that there's no shame in actually getting proper counseling because a reading can feel like a really nice counseling session but it's not counseling and we have to be very very careful about looking at spiritual healing as actual medicine all the time because it can send you in this loop where you're just constantly feeling like you have to fix something and you're never fixed so yeah. it, it's this sense of how, how can we relax a bit more and not expect life to give us so much and 
ma- be manifesting and manifest this and do that. So yeah, the other thing was that manifestation obsession. There was this real sense of like this divide between you're here to be of service, but you should also be manifesting cars and boats and the best job and ideal this. And it's just, it's exhausting. And it, I don't see it as highly enriching. As I said, it really depends on the person and what you want from your life. And if you can be honest with yourself and say, I actually don't feel quote unquote happy or content on a good day, then there's something that you need to pay attention to in that and ask yourself, is it because I'm living too much with reliance on the external world delivering everything I want in a day versus having a strong internal world that helps me to understand the external world better? Do you think that in particularly our current Western society, do you think that sort of new age philosophies and practices are becoming more or less prevalent at the moment? I think in the Popular. West they're hugely prevalent. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think what's happening is it's, it is going to be held a bit more accountable. I, I had an extract from the book in The Guardian just a couple of days ago and it's the, the chapter on appropriation on the New Age. It's the section on appropriation rather. It's not a whole chapter. And the fact that the New Age just isn't all that new, it's just re-engineered existing traditions. Humans, for as long as they've existed, have sought to understand what is mm. out there and why we believe what we believe. And I I would be very surprised if that changes. What I think is happening is that we are becoming increasingly sophisticated. We are becoming a bit more open-minded and expansive. And while that also delivers people into more sort of vulnerable states where they might do things that actually get them in a loop of, of problems, it can also mean that they are getting better at developing new ways of dealing with their lives. So it's kind of this um, catch-22, really. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's going anywhere. I, yeah. I, I think what it will do is continue to evolve and shift over time, as it should, because we are evolving and shifting. But I, I really loved reading um, that book, God, by Reza Aslan, yep. uh, because he documents so neatly the, the beliefs of humans since the beginning of time. And it's, it's a bit academic. It's a heavy book. But what was really interesting about it was, wow, like we've always sought to believe. We just didn't know what to believe. Mm. And so God takes on new shape and ideas over time and under the the pressure of life. And you'll see if you look at the last century post-World War II was really when New Age was born. And it's because people were discontent with religion. It hadn't served them. It hadn't given them what they thought they wanted the world had been through so much tragedy with two big world wars. So, well, what's the point of religion? And so you had this psychedelic phase come up where people were suddenly delving into the Eastern traditions, taking drugs, seeking experiences, which is, I mean, I think experiences are beautiful if they can open you up to possibility. But what we have to be careful about is just becoming addicted to experience. And that's what I think the new age can be really good at. It gets people really uh, excited about ritual. And the feeling like that they're creating an outcome, but then they sit there and they wait for it. It's like, okay, I've done this big manifestation ritual. And so now I just have to wait. And it's like, you're supposed to be in a state of living all the time and grace. And this is not how it works. So that's what I would say. And what about in terms of writing and creativity? You talk about creative catharsis a little bit in the book. And obviously you're a writer, you're, you're a very creative person. How do you see that connection between spirituality and creativity and how that might benefit writers if they you know are open to tapping into that well yeah I mean that's a really good question I think that for some people there's no denying writing is simply a grounded non-spiritual act and I I don't know if I've ever used the word spiritual with writing I'd probably say it's more of a magical experience Mm. in the sense of 
not magic as in casting a spell, but something that is inexplicable. You can't really explain it to people. It's otherworldly sometimes. It's transcendent. It's designed where you feel like you become a vehicle for information and you just, you feel like you're the voice for something or you are meant to say something about something in particular. Mm. So I think for me, what makes creativity a lot more interesting is it's not designed to be explained. It's, it's yeah. your journey. It's how you live it. Like I, I don't think there's one way to be creative. I think there are a lot of people as well who talk about creative energy as sexual energy and it's true. Like they, if someone's in a really hot relationship with someone, they're probably not going to be there that creative because all of their energy is going into that relationship. Being channeled that way, yeah, yeah. Mind you, for some people, it's the opposite. They're like, well, I'm so creative right now that I'm highly charged in that area. So it's yeah. this weird thing. Yeah. I, I think Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, is really interesting because I think she's tapping into something a lot of people believe, that it's this very ethereal experience that we pluck ideas out of the ether And I think there can be some truth to that because I've been that person who's had an idea. I didn't act on it. And years later, I saw it and I'm like, that was the idea that I had. But and I just didn't take it. I didn't want it or I didn't feel like I was equipped for it or whatever. But I, I don't think it's necessary to be a good creative. I think what's necessary is your truth, yourself, your authenticity, because that is necessarily spiritual. Whether you think you're a spiritual being or not, you are. It's, it's irrelevant what you think you are. The reality of life is that it is not completely uh, clear what, what we are and what we're here for and what is beyond this. It's just mm. impossible. We can't prove or disprove it. The only thing we can do is experience what feels otherworldly. And that's why people do ritual and they do magic and it's about transformation. But also that's why some people are creative because creativity is a transformative process. So, yes, it can be cathartic. It doesn't have to be. So actually, because to say that would suggest that you can only write if you're suffering or you're only useful as an artist if you're suffering. And I actually don't think that's true. I think it's when you come out of a, a time of suffering where you are actually your best self, that you might have better knowledge to impart through your experiences and your characters, for example, or your artwork. I I think creativity should uplift people. It's not meant to make them feel like life is against them all the time. And I I really hope that I do that with my writing. I always seek to make people feel like they have power. I'm not a big fan of creativity that makes people feel powerless. And I think that if the artist feels powerless, their work will feel like that. But as a method of healing, creativity is up there. I personally feel like creativity is a superpower. I've talked about that on my podcast. I, I, I personally believe that the world would be in better shape if more people were creative or had the power to be creative or the ability to. And unfortunately, they don't because in some parts of the world, there's great suffering and limitation. And if, if I had one dream, if I had one thing I could do, it would be to, to create opportunities for people to be creative in their own way. And I have personally seen it. I've done workshops at schools where kids who are like barely in high school crying because you're telling them what did you like doing when you were a kid and they're like oh well I wanted to be an actor I wanted to be this or I want and they'd already forgotten it they'd already been told you need to pass your maths exam and your science exam and that's great I think we need people who are uh, academically diligent and amazing and all of that but the creativity gets lost and, and a part of us gets chipped away in the process and so I think creativity heals it does because when I wrote my first novel I had no idea what I was doing. If I'm being honest, I'd read a lot of novels, but I hadn't taken any courses. And that became obvious as I was struggling with each draft. But 
I knew I knew the essence of what I was doing, mm. but it was also my way of healing at the time of broken heart. It was that I right. I'd had so much disappointment in my life, and I remember thinking, "This isn't what I'd signed up for. <laughs> this isn't what I thought was going to be my life at 28." And and a lot of that was my own modeling and my own thinking that this is what I'm here to do: just get married and have kids or whatever. And I hadn't done that. And so b- writing the book actually opened my mind to my potential. And I think that you really, really have to allow for that with creativity is that don't have a rigid attachment to what you think it should be. If you're writing a book, don't think this has to be a bestseller. It's it's unlikely to be. Let's be mm. honest. Most people yeah. aren't bestselling authors. We're, we're all right. <laughs> we, you know, we might have written something that affects somebody 100% and then it just doesn't make the top 10. doesn't mean your work is irrelevant. It matters to you and it matters to however many people read it and you never know when something will show up again because I've had things like I self-published two books they will now be published alongside the new novel because they're all part of sort of the same character world and so if I'd given up on that completely I would have just dismissed them and gone well oh well they were self-published but because I knew that there was something left in them it took 10 years but so what it just you've got to play with your creativity be open to it and and don't take it so seriously. I have this problem where I'm just like, the world is depending on my work and it's not. I do better when I don't have such high stakes and high pressure on myself. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you have created a a fantastic deck of cards, Amal, uh, which is around this whole idea of creativity for artists and writers, the creative compass. I mentioned earlier that you, you love tarot and things. Can you talk a bit about the deck and how that works? Yeah, I actually have it with me here. The Creative's Compass was really an idea that had been brewing for a couple of years and it was this sense that I knew there were, I call them soulful creatives, people Mm. like me who are quite woo and we know that there's something magical about the process, just something that is not really easily explained. There's something cathartic and beautiful and purposeful about the process of, of creativity and I had had the idea and had discussed it with another person to do a deck together and then it never happened And then I'm a daily meditator and one day I'd finished meditating and the idea was just completely clear in my mind of what I needed to do and it was just very sudden. It was like, okay, just play with this approach. It was essentially a very basic idea of the stages of creativity, so all the things I had been through, all of the factors that affect me as a creative, the influences, the the setting. Think of it as a story, even like the characters, plot devices, whatever. That was how I saw it, but I wanted it to be accessible to anybody. It was never designed to be like a tarot deck. It's not designed to be even an oracle deck. It can be used as one. So if you wanted to shuffle it like an oracle deck, which basically means give me a message, you could do that and it's fine. You can actually work that way really well. But what it was was designed to help people through writer's block or artist block or creative's block. It was designed in a way to help people get out of their own way. And mm-hmm. to understand that they're not alone in the, the troubling aspects of being a creative, that it is a difficult path, that it doesn't necessarily offer financial reward quickly or if ever, um, but it also doesn't have to be a path of struggle. So for me, what was essential to the deck was infusing it with some sense of joy, that your creativity is not meant to work against you. It's not designed for you to suffer. So Mm -hmm. I really wanted whoever was using the deck to feel simpatico with it and sort of go, 
I feel restored. I know what's stopping me. So how would somebody go about using the deck? So the artwork on them is gorgeous. Yeah, it's actually one of my friends, Zena Yali. She's an artist and she gave me her mandala and said, you can use it for your deck. So essentially what it was, was I, I'd taken the mandala <clears throat> and we, with the, the help of a designer, recolored the mandalas so that they all represented different aspects of it. Okay. So there's the way, which is very much about like the creative ether the plane, the field, all of those things we talked about, that thing we can't see that informs our creativity. Then there's the personas, so the different masks we wear and all that sort of thing, the aspects of creativity, feelings and states, desires and outcomes, blockages and activity and stages. And the thing is all of those things overlap. So often mm, a feeling yeah. is also a stage and blah, blah, blah. I also put blank cards in there so people could create their own cards. So things that define a part of their creative process. And mainly that's because as well, the desires and outcomes is very short in this deck. It's only five cards that I did because I wanted people to decide for themselves what their desires are and what their outcomes are. But if we took, for example, one card, let's have a look. So here's one, it's creative relics. Mm -hmm. So this is in the activity and stages part. It was a strong idea once perhaps, but sometimes you outgrow ideas. Evolution is more powerful than achieving outdated goals. So it was what we were talking about earlier about when do you leave an idea behind yeah. and when do you stop. So that's a huge blockage for people is that I had this idea 10 years ago and I'm going to see it through. Yeah. <laughs> and I will write that book I before write, I die. <laughs> and, and actually you could be missing missing the boat on something really amazing that's more contemporary and more relevant and maybe that idea does have life but not now and why would you waste all that time so if you pick that card you could look through blockages as well but but that's why it's the it's a funny thing that all of the sections kind of overlap yeah and creative timing is another one for example so this is the thing that really gets us is that we've written this book it's been put out there and it didn't hit the bestseller list I don't understand. I was so inspired and it's amazing. And it was this magical process and it all flowed through me. It was like a divine download. Why didn't it happen? Yeah. You know? So this card, for example, says delays often work in your favor. Spacious thinking can be helpful. You will know when to persist. Patience, essential. Don't give angst a seat at the table. So this card for me was really important because I've been through that. I've yeah. been through that. Like you will know when to persist is a really essential line in that card because it's basically saying if everything is just working against you, take a hint, like take a break, just yeah. step back. Don't force it. It's not working. Maybe there's something you need to let go of for it to work. And, you know, I you know, see it all the time in my writing. Quite often the one thing I'm really attached to is the one thing that needs to go because it's just holding the whole story back. I know. I've got one of those right now and I've realised today it needs to go and it's like, oh, really? But I, th I thought that was so good when I wrote it. Kill your darlings, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think this deck is about giving you the courage to kill your darlings but also yeah. to em embrace what's possible so like I do have positive cards in there they're not all, not all negative <laughs> like here's creative breakthrough for example simply a breaking apart the pressure released overnight success takes years so everybody thinks that like that person's had a breakthrough but did you see what they went through to get there it's like that doesn't show in a breakthrough yeah. just because it's suddenly gone boom right like something's Finally, the pressure has been released. And so everybody thinks that like this person just broke through. It's like they they did because they there was so much pressure and effort behind them. And then there's the creative completion card, which is kind of like the final card. And that says transformation. 
you don't move out of it the way you came in, hopefully your audience won't either. And so I think that this is really important. I hope creatives can find that there are layers to the reward of being a creative, that sometimes it is knowing that one person in another part of the world read your book or saw your artwork and was affected because they can affect others. And I think that it's very easy to lose sight of that because we live in a world where we're constantly meant to showcase our achievements we're constantly meant to be achievers. And actually, it's a huge achievement to write a book. It's a huge achievement to be able to be vulnerable in front of a canvas, to be an actor, to to open your heart and be intimate with another person on screen. And actually, creativity is not purely art forms or entertainment or writing. Creativity is showing up in everyday stuff every profession requires creativity so that was the other thing I was trying to say that we are actually inherently creative beings using our creativity flexing those muscles every day in different ways the architect is creative the lawyer is creative everybody is creative it's just about claiming your version of creativity and enjoying the ride so the, the card deck it is probably not for everyone because it is intense. It's it's actually, but it can be light as well. But I, I, I gave one to a friend recently and she, she was like, could you just show me what, what I'm meant to do with it? Because yeah. she's not into woo. And she thought it was an oracle. And when I showed her, oh, well, let's work through this. And it was just picking six cards and her looking at the cards to pick them. So it wasn't relying on luck or randomness. And she really understood after that. It had given her solutions the, the deck is designed to get you thinking so that you actually come up with your own solutions. It's meant to break apart the rigid thinking. So I use Brian uh, Eno's oblique strategies a lot. And that helped me a lot when I was writing Beyond Failed Clichés, Fridays with my folks, where I constantly found myself questioning my approach and feeling a bit stuck. And I would use Brian's deck to just pick a card to break it. It just breaks okay. it through. Um, and that was what this deck is sort of designed to do. It's in the spirit of that idea of like, can I cut your thought in half for a second and get you to step out of this same thinking? Because often we're just repeating thoughts as well as creatives. So there's nothing in here where I'm talking down to anyone. Everything I talk about in here, I've been through it. Yeah. I've been through it. And and actually one thing I would say is I know a lot of Oracle and Tarot deck creators and they all say the same thing. That deck is my life. I Mm. went through every stage of that deck. And I think that's really important. It's about normalising what feels really surreal to people. Nobody's going to understand what it's like to be creative. Well, actually, we're all creative every day and we're all stuck in our ways and it's it's actually preventing us from realising our full potential. But I think a lot of that is because we rely on certain outcomes to happen and we're like, if this doesn't happen, I failed. Yeah, yeah. And it's just not true because you just yeah. never know what people are getting out of your work or when it's time is going to come. So I think it's really important. I, I'm, I'm massively guilty of this. I feel like I've achieved nothing. And then I, I actually sat down the other day and realised, oh, my God, I've written like seven books. So it's, that's not easy. Why do I act like I've done nothing? It's really hard. And that's because not every aspect of my creativity is successful in my eyes. So there are still parts of my creative life where I'm still trying to get a breakthrough or whatever. And so it tends to infiltrate your thinking and it makes you think that you failed and yeah. actually you're not, you're just more advanced in one area than another. So mm. that's the thing. When I talk about the uphill climb, 
I don't think you should run out of oxygen. If you're taking the wrong mountain, get off it. Go somewhere else. <laughs> Enjoy the view. Like it's a long, it's a long climb. Yeah. So make sure it's the view that you want. It's the place you're happy to stop and rest at once in a while. That's the important thing. It's not about making your journey difficult. I think we have this real sense of suffering alongside a poverty consciousness in creative fields. I see it all the time. And once again, guilty of it because we think we're not valued. We don't yeah. get paid enough. We get asked to do things for free all the time. And yet people live off entertainment through the pandemic. What sustained us? It was yeah, TV and exactly. reading and books, books have yeah. done really well because this is what our job is as creatives is to keep people thinking and entertained and, and really stepping outside of their reality. Mm. Oh, I love it. A couple of other questions I had about the deck, you've actually answered in that. So I'll, I'll move okay. on to the new book, which you have coming out, The Things yes. We See in the Light, and it's yep. a title that I think is fabulous. Thank you. Could you tell us just a little bit about it? Yeah, The Things We See in the Light is a novel. It's technically the third book in the series that I've written. So I, I wrote my first book, Courting Samira, about a decade ago, I think. And the second book, This Is How You Get Better, followed on from Courting Samira. Stylistically, they were a bit different because they, they're both first-person books from different characters' perspectives. And Courting Samira was unapologetically chiclet. And This Is How You Get Better was probably my Nick Hornby face. <laughs> it more of a satirical kind of cervic kind of wit. This book is totally different. It's essentially the, the third character in, in a group of friends who she was the most religious, the most strict. She was a socially phobic person. And I was really curious about her. And I remember thinking to myself, what happens to a person like that? And I've seen it in, in so many people's lives that when you hold on too tight to something, it all falls apart. Mm. so I I just followed those breadcrumbs I realized once again it was one day after I'd meditated I just had this very clear idea that I needed to to go back to it so I'd already written a few paragraphs and I had just gotten scared and chickened out and went no, don't want to don't want to revisit that but I realized I'd even went and written another novel avoiding writing this one oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know why I was so afraid of right. it I was um and so I went back in and I just I picked it up and I went, okay, what does this story look like? And it's essentially this woman coming back after a, a divorce. Oh, well, she wants a divorce. She's leaving the, the husband behind in Jordan. She'd gone and lived overseas for about eight years and her whole life had changed and she has all these secrets and she comes back unexpectedly on her friend's doorstep and basically says, I've left my husband and I need to rebuild my life here again. And the book is really about, a fresh start but it's a fresh start in a way that is almost like coming of age at, at in your late 30s right. so she's in her late yep. 30s but she's never been a normal teenager and she's never been someone who had a normal 20s and so she's like almost playing catch up but not in the way that you'd think so one of the important things about the book was that I was very aware that she was once a very religious person and I didn't want it to be an anti-religion book. It wasn't about that. It was about interrogating the hold that religion had on this character who never really seemed to be enjoying it. <laughs> she was so yeah. that she actually wasn't a spiritual being. She was a frightened being. And the book is not about religion. There's a line in the book that to me is really essential. She used to wear a headscarf and she says people thought that I was, I'm going to paraphrase myself terribly, but she says people thought I was imprisoned in a headscarf, but I know the truth, I would be the same person in any religion. I think the essence of the book came alive for me when I wrote that line because it was like that's what this story is about. Who we are at our core is going to get tested by what we do in life. 
and who we associate with and what we allow ourselves. And so the book is actually an unfurling of a person's nature to understand her true essence and see sort of what is really important to her if nobody had told her how to think or feel. And it really shows us these things. Love is the thing that whether it's through friends or through romantic or intimate relationships, love is a huge mirror. It really helps us to look at our lives in a way where we understand ourselves better. And I I really wanted to celebrate that. I love a good love story. Who doesn't? But for me, a love story, for it to have real meaning and depth, it really needs to be about transformation. It's not really about getting your your clothes off, you know, you can have that and it's great. (laughs) But it was really about what does this person tell me about myself? Why are they in my life? And how do I change as a result of their presence? So the book is really about transformation. It's very much about what is revealed about who you are as a person and everything at the heart of what I write, I've realized involves women living in a world that is not designed for women in some ways or kind to women. It's really about the role we play as women to each other but also what we owe to ourselves as women, how we want to experience life and what's possible for us. So I think that's what the novel is really about. But technically, it's the story of a woman who's leaving behind her old life and shedding her old skin in order to embrace a new version or the real version of who she is. And that's really what the book is. Mm, Sounds fabulous. I think you've answered my last question there, Mm Amal, because my last question on these episodes, Heart of Writing, is always, what is at the heart of your writing? (laughs) It is is absolutely authenticity. The importance of living truthfully and authentically is at the heart of my writing. So whether it's writing about Arab women and the truth of who they are, how they see themselves to people who who are getting older and aging and getting sick or dying and families grappling with that, or if it's about the new age and belief, or if it's a novel about transformation, it's always asking questions about what is a true life? What is a rich life? It's one that is truthful and honest and authentic and one where we can be ourselves. Mm. And I think that that's what's at the heart of my writing. Fantastic. Thank Thank you you so much, Amal. It's been just such a fabulous chat and there's so many things I could get you back on and I might one day get you back on the podcast to um, to talk about further. Yeah. So first of all, In My Past Life, I Was Cleopatra is out now. That's available for people to grab. Yeah, available everywhere, yeah. Yep. And uh, what about the... The card deck is actually at the moment available on makeplayingcards.com because it's self-published. So there's a link on my website, amalawa.com. You can mm-hmm. go there and you can buy it. It is a little bit on the pricier side, unfortunately, because it's self-published and I, I don't have the, the luxury of volume right now. Yeah. But it's, it's affordable and it's a good investment. If you mm. are someone who is very much uh, finding that your creativity gets stunted by procrastination, <laughs> you want to understand it better, I think something like this, it's just a tool. It's just something that will help you break through a little bit and start to develop healthier habits. You go to my website and check it all out there and you can see what it's all about. Yep. Fantastic. And the things we see in the light will be out in August. August 31. Yep. Brilliant. Well, congratulations. Your year is getting bigger and bigger. I uh, hope so. Like I said, it doesn't always feel like that when you're creative because you have these bursts, you're really busy and then it's just really quiet and it feels like nothing's happening. But I really feel like for me, it's so important to always have something to do. (laughs) But learn to rest as well, actually, that's my advice. Yes. True. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us on the podcast and um, we'll be looking out for all those things. They sound fantastic. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. 
Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>